Welcome to Koopy Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you people, I did well this Christmas. You know, I got some good stuff. I can't complain. But it's funny, because Joanne, she gave me a Fitbit you wear on your wrist, and she gave me face moisturizer, so I think she's trying to tell me that I'm out of shape and I have dry skin. But the best thing I got, the best thing I got was she got me this Echo Dot. And you know me, I'm a huge music fan. And I have the Amazon Unlimited Music. Well, I have for, I get it for three months for, it was a special, three months for 99 cents. So I said, why not? And I got to tell you, if you love music, you have to get one of these dots. If you have, And if you have Amazon Prime, because or an Alexa, because I think it's like $29.99. But you just sit there and you say, you, you call to Alexa and you tell them, what song to play and Amazon Unlimited has like the un- amazing all these songs so I gotta tell you for me if you love music do that because yesterday I was doing work and I was just right on the computer trying to book guests and I was just like yelling and it was playing all these songs and enough about me we have a great guest today we have a amazing guitarist you know he's uh, in the new supergroup Sons of Apollo he's been with GNR he's put so many solo albums out and our guest is Bumblefoot how you doing man Good. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Now I gotta ask you, and I, I read a little bit by how you got the name, but people people probably want to know when they hear Bumblefoot. Please tell me how the origin of this name, how you've got it, and how you've made it stick. Because nicknames, are, and well, now it's your real name, are sometimes hard to stick. <laughs> okay, Bumblefoot. That. All right. My wife is a veterinarian, and twenty five years ago. Uh, when we were dating, and I would drive 500 miles down to North Carolina from New York uh, to spend weekends with her and help her study. And one of the diseases, ulcerative pododermatitis, also known as bumblefoot, something that chickens and turkeys and guinea pigs get. Uh, it was just such a funny name that I immediately got inspired, and, and I wrote a song called Bumblefoot. And then uh, a few years later, I had my first record deal on Shrapnel Records, U.S., and Roadrunner, Europe, Japan. And the first album we were putting out was this instrumental uh, guitar-centric album called The Adventures of Bumblefoot. I made that song like the theme of the album and made artwork that uh, correlated, is that the right word, uh, matched the... <laughs> the uh the song titles and every song was named after a different animal disease so it was bumblefoot orf scrapey blue tongue limberneck uh <laughs> q fever uh all kinds of crazy diseases and then from there when it was time to really hit the road i mean i had abandoned everything but but at that point when it was time to hit the road doing the music that's coming out on these albums uh, decided to call the band Bumblefoot because the music was quirky, the name is quirky, it matched. Uh, so it was really a band name. And then 20 years now of putting out these Bumblefoot albums, and it became like a nickname over time. Quickly became like a nickname. Well, it's very, it's very memorable. I mean, very memorable. And the good thing is, you know, if you, when you Google you, like cause I always do my research, you know, when I go to Wikipedia, if you click the wrong, wrong Wikipedia, you do get the foot disease. And I'm like, no, this is the mm-hmm. wrong thing. So now, now you started playing guitar at a young age. And I, I, I read somewhere, was it that Gene Simmons inspired you at like six years old? Or how did you get, how did you start playing music? Ah, well, I just moved from Brooklyn to Staten Island at the age of five. And in 
the neighborhood on my block there were all these kids that were my age and we all had the older brothers and sisters that were about two to three years older and this was the mid going into the late 70s and you know music was just the best it's ever been and there were albums all over everyone's houses just lying around i remember i would go over uh my neighbor mike's house and and there would be these you know paul mccartney solo albums and and elton john albums and i would go over uh friend bobby's house and there would be yes albums and uh and then i saw this one that had just come out with these interesting looking characters with painted faces on them it was the kiss alive album just came out and i remember me and bob i remember it like yesterday still just sitting on his bunk bed on the lower bed and just putting on this album and staring at the speakers and just listening to the crowd cheering and Paul Stanley's banter and and the energy coming out of that album. And as soon as I heard it, it just hit me immediately. It's like, that's what I want to do. And I started working towards it at that age. By the time I was six, I had a band with an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and we had our banner that we made ourselves drawn on a big window shade hanging on the wall in the basement where we would practice and we would put on concerts and we would sell tickets and we would make little cups of homemade confetti to throw in the air at the end of the show and uh we would make demos that i would uh take multiple cassette recorders and figured out how to multi-track and get levels using distance. So the drums would be 10 feet back. We would have our little acoustic guitars just a foot away from the cassette recorder and we would play the music. And then remember we would stand up the cassette recorder and have another one just like it, facing it, just like two inches away recording. And we would put our faces next to it. We would just squeeze our faces next to the, the cassette player and sing along while the other one was recording. And that would be how we overdubbed vocals and that was our demo and then we would just let that one play and have another one recording and that's how we would make copies to give out to all the kids we went to school with and and then we started playing at the school and everything just grew from there where did this come from i mean it's it's an amazing you know at that at that age i mean six you know you already had like a business plan in order were your parents very creative, or where do you think this came from, or were you just the prodigy? Oh, no, no, it was the times. Music was so good and so inspiring, and it was so easy to just, you know, just follow what your idols were doing. It's like, okay, they have confetti shooting out at the end of the show, so we're going to throw confetti in the air. And at that age, you're too young to think about why you can't do something. You know, your, your, you know, the id, the ego, the superego, all that stuff, uh, they're not developed yet to stop you, to make you say, wait, I can't, or I don't have this, or I don't have that. You just use what's around you. And kids are so resourceful and creative. They don't have all the excuses yet that we start to develop as we get older, saying, oh, well, I don't have money, or I don't have a studio, or I don't have this, whoa, 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 poor me. No, you use what you have. And that was the best lesson in life, is just looking back on that and saying, you don't need what you don't have. 
Right now, now who were some of your influences for the fact that you know I read you played a lot of different types of music, and that's what you know that's how got you you know people noticed you. But when you were starting out, you said you saw Kiss, but as you were playing, you were trying to create original music and stuff like that. Who were mm-hmm. you influenced by, and did you did you listen to a lot of different music, or did you just sit there and learn it as you as you just played? You had inspiration. Well, I started when I was seven, going to guitar lessons and studied. Just the academic stuff, reading, music theory, all of that. And then on my own time, uh, we would write songs just pretty much based on, on what we heard around us and what inspired us. So all our sound, all our songs, they sounded like little Kiss songs or whatever was on the radio, you know, Sweet Fox on the Run or whatever it was, uh, whatever music was around us. And... It was just great stuff. I mean, growing up in the 70s was such a good time for music. Just picture every week. Hey, here's a new album from Queen. Here's a new album from Led Zeppelin. Here's a new album from The Who. And here's the latest from ACDC. Now here's a new one from the Ramones. And everything was great. Here's something new from Fleetwood Mac. Here's something... Every single thing that came out was phenomenal. Even other types of music. The funk was incredible. And all the disco stuff. The orchestration and the, the melodies and the singers, uh, fantastic. Everything was great. It was the height of music. So as a kid, when you're a sponge for everything around you and to have that, you know, being bombarded with such great music, it was very easy to get inspired and to write and you had the best influences and inspirations around you. And then you start looking back and checking out things from the 60s. So I was a huge, huge Beatles fan. I was into Cream and, and Hendrix. Uh, yeah. I'm, now I'm a few years older. I'm two or three years older than you. And, um, and I agree with you with the music. And when you look at it now, I mean, how do you think music has changed right now when you see other bands coming out? Because you're right. I think the 70s and even the 80s were a good time. I mean, I'm not a musician, but as a listener, the 80s, you know, we had the, the new wave and we were getting some of the glam metal. And But we, we, we always had a lot to listen to. What do you think has happened that has changed where you could get so inspired and now people just like you don't see bands that last forever anymore? Well, there's a lot of <laughs> reasons that happens. Like, I think back then... You can nurture a band and bring out their best, where now the musical economy doesn't allow for that. It's like, show me what you got, I'm going to throw it against the wall. If it sticks, great. If not, that's the end of it. So that's a big part of it. Also, I think in general, it's, you know, there's an issue of style over substance and convenience over quality that has really taken over our lives. Uh, so with that, that's a big part of it, too. Uh, you find that we've become so reliant on technology, especially in the studio, uh, that maybe you don't have to be quite as good. <laughs> oh, don't worry, we'll fix that. We'll tune that up. No. Practice. Get better. Fine-tune yourself. <laughs> 
how often, that's, that's the thing. How often were you practicing when you were younger? How often would you sit in the room and practice or just get out and play in a, in a day? Because I heard people who say they've, you know, some people they've practiced for hours upon hours. You loved it. I mean, how much when you were younger were you practicing? When I was very young, uh, I don't think it was that, that much. Uh, but I know when I was a teenager, I pretty much lived it day and night where either like it was all broken up. It was, uh, I would spend some time practicing what I needed to do for my guitar lessons. Uh, then I would on my own time, uh, be practicing other things that I just wanted to get down at one point when I was about 15, I did a thing where every day I would try and learn an entire album and I would just drop the needle. I would listen. I would play along until by the end, uh, just going through the structure of the songs and things that, that can anticipate what's coming next as you get a part down. And, uh, uh, and by the end of the song, I had a song learned and I would maybe drop the needle back to you know, solo or certain melodies and then get to the next song. By the end of the album, uh, I might have kind of forgotten the first few songs, but I would do that. Every day, I, would, I remember I did like Scorpions, Blackout, and I would do Van Halen albums and, and just anything that I had. And, and my grandmother had a bunch of old Speed 78 albums, uh, Tchaikovsky, things like that, and different violin pieces. And uh, So I would just challenge myself all the time with that. And then there'll be another part of the day where I'm just jamming. You know, my brother played drums and, and we would just be in the basement playing or another point where I'm writing songs or another point where I'm just making little funny demos for my own amusement of just silly songs, just weird stuff. Uh, and then anything that I learned, I would always share and I would teach. If you learn it, teach it. If someone shows it to you, show it to the next person. That is the nature of being a musician and that is what we should all be doing. And I think it's in our spirit anyway. Uh, it's a natural thing to do. The same way music inspires you, well, knowledge inspires you. The knowledge on how to make music, that inspires you. So when it inspires you and you get creative and you make music to share with other people and inspire them, you get that same itch to do it with the knowledge to show people how they can make the music and do what you're doing their own way. So you're you're it's, you're very dedicated. You're you're gigging. How do you get your first break, and what is your first break that you sit there and go, "Okay, I'm coming to the next level now. I'm getting out of the basement." I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, it's like the frog in the boiling water that's slowly boiling and doesn't realize that he's cooking. Uh, it's not like this one big thing that happens. It's just all these little steps that you're taking you don't even realize it until you look back and say oh wow i've taken a lot of steps here but i never i don't know i don't see it i don't feel it i don't look at it to me it's an infinite endless staircase of things that you can do and endless possibilities and no matter how far along you've gotten you're always just at the beginning um you know i guess it was when i got say my first bar gig and then from there first time opening at a club for a national act and then the first time you're headlining and then if you're 
uh, you know, there's things like that. Or if you start playing with other people and, uh, you know, someone asks you to play guitar with them for another gig. Like I did one, like this fundraiser where I played with Nancy Sinatra and she was so cool. She was just so cool. She like, she just had that, that vibe. She's like, come on, honey, step to the front of the stage, take a solo. <laughs> like, my gosh, she's so cool. Um, stuff like that. And then first time you're playing for thousands and that kind you know, just all of that. Uh, How did you... There's always little milestones that happen and it never stops as long as you keep striving to do your best and give your best. How did you get signed with Shrapnel? That was your first record, you said. How did that come about? And then what was that feeling when you actually were going to do a record? Oh, uh, the feeling was, what have I done? Um, <laughs> what did I get myself into? Um, let's say that started, It was I was making these little silly guitar songs, just my own amusement, like little instrumental songs that were kind of strange and just... I like them. And people would say, you know, why don't you just send them to some of the guitar magazines where they're doing write-ups on unknown players. So I remember I sent one out to uh, to one magazine, and I remember the guy called me back. Uh, I don't remember his name, but I remember he was a real dick. Um, <laughs> he was known for being a dick. And he called me, and he, and he called me on the phone. I was like, oh, wow, okay. And he says, you know, every couple of years a guitar player comes along that just changes the way people think about guitar and inspires others and, and just really just raises the bar and starts a new trend or whatever, like saying all these things. And then he pauses and he says, you're not one of those people. Oh, wow. And he, then he says, you should learn to play the blues. And it's like a nice thing to say to a teenage kid. Um, yeah, where is he now? So that, yeah, actually, I think years later, he called me asking, you know, for employment. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. They're always like, it's like, I guess you forgot what you said to me, <laughs> asshole. Um, comes around, goes around. Sorry, can't help you. Uh, so, but then I remember Mike Varney uh I sent to him, and he gave me the stellar write-up. He loved it. He said it was one of the you know, most interesting demos or nicest, I don't remember the exact words, but he very positive. He, he liked it, and and, uh, and that was in the August 89 issue of Guitar Player Magazine, the Spotlight column. He put me in there, and we stayed in touch, and I remember he offered me some band situations uh, different times said, yeah, 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 with this guy on drums and this guy on bass, and why don't you guys put something together and do an album? And at that point, I was just staying very, uh, what's the word, uh, loyal <laughs> to the band I was in at the time. And I was like, no, I just want to stick with my band. And, and if anything's going to happen, I want it to be with my band, with, with us. And, then after, uh, let's see, that was, yeah, that was 89 going into the 90s, and we stayed in touch, stayed friends and all. Uh, and at that point, the teaching I was doing went from teaching neighbors in the basement to teaching high school uh, 
kids I went to high school with in, in the basement to someone opened a music store and I started teaching at the music store. And then I started uh, teaching at the Samish Music Institute, which I don't know if they exist anymore. But there was one in Jersey that I started teaching at. And then from there, I became the, uh, the music, the head of the music department at this private school and made a whole music curriculum for the school from a uh, jazz band to a choir to uh, music history to just everything. And, and uh, then from there, I remember uh, it was right after, after that, after doing that, I remember talking to Mike Varney, said, you know what, let's do it. Let's do something. So to do a, a new subsidiary label that was going to have vocal music because shrapnel is all instrumental and i told him i said well go i sing and i'm a songwriter and yeah i play guitar but for me it's it's about the songs and i just i'm a band guy i'm um my heart is in a band where it's four or five guys you know everybody on a first name basis and when you hear their name you get this picture in your mind this the sound in your head that you know what i mean just just like those i call them ingredients <laughs> it's like you have very specific strong ingredients that you taste and that is where my heart was you know john paul george ringo uh that kind of thing and that's what i wanted and that's what my goal was and that's what i was shooting for is i wanted to have a band be part of a band that had very distinct uh identities in it uh and that all the bands that are legendary have that whether it's kiss guns and roses the original guns uh you know them on a first name basis and each name carries with it a specific sound that when you put them together it creates one thing in the universe that could never happen the same way ever again when you combine those spirits uh, and it's something bigger than any one person could ever be when you put them together uh, that's what I wanted but I was like all right let's let's do this and the idea was you know pretty much signing me but signing the band uh i remember what he said to me he said you know i'm not signing the beatles i'm signing paul mccartney for the potential okay uh of what can be that that's how he put it to me because i was more about being loyal and, and just you know the band the band the band uh which probably in hindsight was a little bit silly uh yeah, at it's, that it's, time it's... at that age and and just looking at you know, realistically, uh, you know, when it comes to a band, if you're the one carrying everyone and, and if they're just kind of <clears throat> letting you do all the carrying, uh, are you wasting your loyalty? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You're right. I mean, it's a thing, you know, the, you had such good ideals, but you're right. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's the old thing where people say when you 
sometimes, you know, being nice and being loyal, people take that as weakness sometimes. It always happens in the work situation. You know, someone yeah. goes extra hard, goes extra long hours to help out, but then they think, oh, okay, well, then this person can always do that, which probably sometimes happens with a band, too, because when you're the lead and they're there for you, it's got to be hard when, you, when you're, you're thinking about everybody and then you sit there and you, it's hard for us to reflect and say, I'm not being selfish if I think about myself, but I think we're brought up that way that we think that. Yeah, but definitely, you know, I tried, like, it was never my band, it was, like, our band. It's just that, you know, everyone's got to pull their weight and do their part. Uh, I remember when I first joined Guns, I offered, and at that point, Bumblefoot was, you know, my band. And I offered to make it a partnership with the guys I was playing with. And I asked them to just write while I'm gone so that when I get back from the GNR tour, we have some music that we can start, you know, working on the next album and, and do this as a partnership. And they didn't. In fact, they just kind of argued with each other and, and made excuses and nothing happened and there was no progress. What? <laughs> I offered them one third of my life's work uh, each. How? So... So that's, you know, being stupid and wasting loyalty on the wrong people that don't deserve it. Uh, that's an example. So you're not being nice by being loyal sometimes. Sometimes you're being foolish if you're wasting your loyalty on the wrong situation, the wrong people. Uh, loyalty is a wonderful thing, but wasting loyalty is just being stupid. In those, in those early albums, though, did you do all the writing or did people help you? Or was it your project? Well... The Shrapnel albums was all my writing. Uh, a lot of the stuff, I remember after that, and, you know, there were times I tried to make it a, a full band thing and have everyone write, uh, but it didn't quite happen. So it's either you don't move forward or you take the ball and you run. Now, you're in with the band. Now, when do you start touring and when do you start going overseas and how do you see the crowds overseas enjoying you? Well, in 97, I started doing tours, doing clinic tours and things like that. And it was cool. It was, there was enthusiasm and, and, and the guitar players were excited about stuff. And then I started getting over there with the band around the year 2000. And in Europe... Uh, yeah, mostly France. And we had great shows, great crowds, uh, people, you know, crowd surfing and stage diving and singing along. And, and it was like a big party. And even music magazines were saying, like, listing Bumblefoot tours as, like, you know, the top 10 tours of this year. I remember one we, like, beat out Dream Theater. Uh, <laughs> I mean, stuff like that, which is, you know, to me, absurd. Uh, but. You know, people were really enjoying it, and, and it was building up, uh, and it was building and building and building, and then I took a detour in 2006, <laughs> and I joined Guns N' Roses. How did that? Uh, how did that come about? I mean, you know, did they know of you? Because you know, I mean, it's a matter of, as you said earlier, you know, the original Guns N' Roses, and we know all of different bands, and I think when people, when crowds watch a band it's like when um uh jeff scott soda was just on the show 
And he said, like, when he did a brief stint with Journey, you know, people expect something. And it can be hard sometimes because the person's not dead. It's different when someone's passed away. But for you, how did they find you? And did you know that you were going in to fill big shoes? And, and how do you look at that as an artist? Uh, well, we first started talking in 2004. And it wasn't the right time. And I actually said no. Uh, 2006, they had a tour coming up and... and we started talking again, and we got together in New York. We jammed like seven times, just quickly, and hit the road, uh, and ended up playing together for eight years, and doing Chinese Democracy and Appetite for Democracy DVD, and and a lot of great shows, and and uh, you know, I didn't. Maybe I was naive. I don't know, but to me. I took it like, here's a band that needs a guitar player. They want me in the band. Uh, it's working out musically. Let's, let's just go and play. And let's show people a good time. And, you know, I just didn't realize just how, uh, what's the word? I don't know if passionate is a word or just emotionally invested or, or what, but you know, there there are some strong opinions on from fans on on what a band should do or not do uh, when the band is at that level, and uh, when you join the family uh, without a vote <laughs> by the the fans, and they're suddenly like, "Well, who's this guy?" You know, and and you you kind of got to earn it, and you're not going to be accepted. And some will, some won't, some just, you know, will be indifferent. Uh, but there was definitely, uh, definitely had to deal with some crazy shit. Now, I read somewhere that you said in the beginning, the band was sort of not that opening. What is that like? Because, you know, you have talent. I mean, you're, you've been teaching people, you've been touring, you're a no name. They came to get you. It's not like you sat there and went, hey, guys, what is that like? Does that piss you off? I mean, and do you sit there and what do you do to say, screw you guys, man, you hire me, I'm talented, I'm going to show you what I can do? Uh, you know, it's just, I would just stay focused on, on the fans and just say, all right, look, I'm here to put on a show for the people that came to the show and give them the best I can give them. And I would just stay focused on that and just say, all right, well, what can I do better each time? Uh, is it something in the stage show I can do? Is it something for me? What I love about shows is when you don't feel the separation and this is how it is in my own shows when I'm doing solo shows and stuff, it's very interactive. It doesn't feel like they are spectators and you are like a movie screen that they're watching. Uh, you know, I hop into the audience. I bring people up on stage, uh, have them sing stuff, uh, do all different stuff like that. I keep it where we're all involved in this everybody's show. So in Guns, I was like, how can I do that? How can I do what I feel like, you know, just my own philosophy is what's good. So we didn't do the song uh, Don't Cry in the set. And I would get a lot of emails from fans. Oh, I wish you would do that song. We love that song. And, uh, 
so as my solo, I just started playing this spontaneous sort of uh, instrumental version of it, and the audience would sing along. So that was my chance to, to bond with the audience and to include them and make them part of the show and, and have us all be connected. Yeah. So things like that and just anything for them because it's about them. That's why we're there. That's why we're doing what we do. Uh, there's no show without them and without their support and without their love and without everything that they do for the bands they love, uh, there would be no bands. So it's really, it's about that. If I would go to a country that we never played before, I would learn the anthem and, and I would play the country's national anthem. Uh, things like that. Just anything to, to just say thank you and let the fans know they're special. Now, when that you, they matter. When you were playing with Guns N' Roses, were you also create writing on your own and doing your own stuff? Or, I mean, how did that work? I mean, what was your what was your obligations to the band? To go on tour, but could you also record on your own when you were away from them? Oh, yeah, yeah, I could do anything. It was, uh, yeah, very, yeah, it was totally cool like that. Uh, so, yeah, if we had a long stretch where we weren't going to be touring or doing anything, that's when I would bust out albums and be producing people and and putting out my own stuff so after we finished good year of touring uh 2006 2007 then i started working on like my own the uh abnormal cd i finished that up and then i banged out the acoustic cd barefoot uh and then during that time also recording stuff for, for chinese democracy uh now, what made you so, what, what made you do a, a acoustic album? Because I love I love when you know everyone loves acoustic songs, especially when someone is a you know a kicks ass on guitar. What made you decide to do the acoustic guitar, and how did how did people react to it? Oh, they liked it. Yeah, um, you know, I had a bunch of songs that I thought would be uh, cool to to twist into acoustic versions, and people would ask me said hey would you ever do an acoustic album and the truth is when i'm home most of the time i have an acoustic guitar in my hands if i'm just sitting on the couch watching tv or or doing something on the computer i'm holding an acoustic guitar so i'm it's like you know what i play the acoustic guitars so often uh yet i haven't recorded very much acoustically and i should and even till recently i've never i used to do Acoustic shows with Tony Harnell, the singer from TNT. Right. Yeah. And I did with him. Uh, I did one. Uh, was it earlier this year on uh, Shiprocked, the the music cruise with with uh, Jeff Tate? We did an acoustic show, uh, but I've never done my own until just recently. I'd never done a real acoustic show until just this past September. Uh, I started, I did a little acoustic tour through Japan, and since then I've been doing a lot more of them, and I even started doing these sort of one-man shows where, uh, you know, I do clinics, now I do acoustic shows, uh, I do full band shows, uh, so I sort of put elements of all of them together and made this thing where it's 
kind of like a clinic where I do some of the crazy guitar stuff to back in tracks and uh, and it's like an acoustic show where I'll just be singing and playing and have a looper and adding parts and doing all of that uh, sort of a combination of all those things and it's a bit storytellerish where I just have a little back and forth with the audience and talking about things and people have been enjoying them they've been digging them it's, it's kind of weird for me to be on stage alone uh, when it's not officially a clinic, when it's in a rock club, and you have these two kick-ass opening bands, full bands <laughs> playing, and then I go up there and I sit in a chair. Uh, but, you know what, you just go up there and you just be yourself, and do what you do, and, and just be honest. And people have enjoyed it. They've said to me after the shows, you know, that, that they like it even better than the full band show because it's very personal and it just feels more like everyone's getting to know each other and, and it's just more, uh, connected and intimate and, and real in a way. Uh, so I've been going around the U S doing those tomorrow. I'm doing Salt Lake city and the next day, Seattle, uh, a few days ago, I did Dallas, uh, Houston and San Antonio for that, I was in Pittsburgh the week before, uh, in Chicago, and actually it was outside of Chicago, this town called Braidwood. Uh, really nice town, great place. Uh, yeah. How long, how long is your set when you do them, and how do you decide what you're going to play? And, do, and when you decide, does, does the crowd have an impact? Can they, like Blue or Cold does that, people can call out a song. How, how, long, how do you formulate your set when you go to these small towns, when it's just you? Uh, well, I have pretty much a set list, but if someone calls something out, uh, I can play it. Like one of the last shows I did, I finished and they're all yelling, one more song, one more song. Uh, so ended up doing an Iron Maiden song, <laughs> just like a clean guitar, almost like an acoustic version of, of uh, some Iron Maiden. And... Uh, sometimes I'll just look at what, uh, what's on everybody's shirts and whoever's wearing shirts of different bands, I'll play whatever's on their shirt. So I would do that sometimes. Uh, yeah, just keep it spontaneous and, and funny and loose and just keep it fun. That's the whole thing. Well, you know, fun you, for them, fun for me. You're very knowledgeable in music, you know, and you've been playing for years. When you When you did Chinese Democracy, what was that like for you to be in the studio where you're used to producing, you're used to calling the shots. Is that harder as, as a musician or you just, once again, you just learn to go with the flow? Well, recording Chinese Democracy was super tough. Uh, up to that point, it was probably the toughest thing I, I did because I didn't know the songs. I was hearing them for the first time and they were so full. There was so much going on in them already from previous guitar parts to vocal harmonies to string lines to you know, all the different keyboards and loops and, and everything. There was so much going on that I felt like no matter what I did, I was stepping on something. So I worked with uh, the, uh, the producer and engineer, Karim Costanza, and he's fantastic. And he would guide me through it all. And, and uh, you know, he definitely made it happen. And he was great to work with. And uh, you know, we would try literally like a hundred things in a song. <laughs> like it would just be all these different layers of different parts where I would do something on the fretless and then I would do something bluesy and then I would do something kind of, you know, just loosen and, uh, 
it just every possibility. Here's something cleaner. Here's something with the Y. Here's uh, something that's just more atmospheric. Here's something very melodic. Here's something very technical. And in the end, uh, they would listen through and just decide what fit best in you know the final stages of everything and use what they liked and, and scrap what they didn't. Now, when you left the band, Guns N' Roses, you know, you're doing your thing. I, I believe it was your decision to leave. And, you know, they come back. But, you know, as you said, there was the original lineups. You leave. What is your focus after that? Just to concentrate, you know, being doing your own music? I mean, you know, I mean, Guns N' Roses, when you sit there, the bottom line is you were a member of Guns N' Roses, which, you know, they're a legendary band. What, do you, what goes through your mind when you leave them? Do you just say, you know, I've had enough. I just want to do my own thing. Or what happened? Uh, well, you know, there, there was a lot of things. Uh, one thing, I, you know, I was in the band for eight years, and for me, I didn't feel like it was going to become anything. It wasn't going to grow relationship-wise into anything more than it was, and I wanted more. Uh, I wanted to be writing together, recording together, doing everything a band does uh, the way in my mind uh what makes makes it a band and worth being the priority in my life. Uh, but now everyone's got to feel the same way about that. And if they don't, then, you know, the relationship isn't going to work, uh, which is fine. You know what? Everybody's got to want what they want and do what they think is best. Uh, but after eight years, I felt like I needed to get back to all the things that I loved doing that I really missed, which was uh, teaching. And, and that's a big one. Uh, going around the world, doing music camps, uh, working with U.S. embassies, doing these cultural programs in all these different countries with um, you know local musicians there, uh, producing more, uh, having more time in the studio to be creative, to make my own music, to do things for TV shows, for music scores, for indie films. Uh, things like that, like all the things that I really loved doing that I missed. And I felt like I was replaceable. I, anyone could have gone into Guns N' Roses after me and played those parts and I wouldn't have been missed. And that would be that. And the band would be fine. So, you know, why am I denying myself the things that I feel only I can do. Uh, you know what? Even if it's not for tens of thousands of people, if it's just for hundreds of people. But you know what? Every person matters. I don't care if it's just for 10 people because I know for a fact that you can affect just one person and change their life and that has a, a ripple effect that is big. Every person matters. So I was okay, you know, going from big stages to small, but doing what I love and being able to expand and, and grow in all the things I was doing. And, you know, there were a lot of wake-up calls at that time. Um, you know, I had some, some health issues that were a bit of a slap in the face, like, you know what, your days are numbered, you better decide, you know, how you want to spend those days. And I felt like I was I was in a race to to have to make the moves I needed to make. 
what do you do when you, I mean, cause I, I went through a health problem like that, which, you know, it, you, you sit there and you really focus, but so, you know, what was your focus? And I know you you went on, you know, you started Art of Anarchy and now we're, we want to talk about Sons of Apollo, but was your thing, you, your focus, you said you were teaching, but did you sit there and want to just get into a, another band that you knew that you would have fun with? Um, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I was hoping it would be my own band. <laughs> you know, of just Bumblefoot. Um, but Art of Anarchy was something that started in 2011 while I was still in guns for a couple of years. Uh, that was old friends of mine that have been friends for a good 20 years. In fact, I used to produce their band, uh, the different bands that they had in New York uh, years ago, and, and we always stayed friends, and they're wonderful. Uh, you know, they... They got out of music for a while and then wanted to get back in. And they started Art of Anarchy. And that, that was something that started off just as a fun little personal project, something just to do uh, for them. But it grew from there. Um, you know, they had 10 songs. They were a drummer and a guitar player, John and Vince Voda. And they had just 10 songs that are just drum part and a guitar part and you know a vision for those songs so i brought them into the studio and we laid down their parts and as we went you know john would say hey ron why don't you throw down a guitar solo right here it's like yeah sure and i'll just bust something out and the idea was to get different singers on different songs and the first person to do it was scott wyland and he did a great job he did the song till the dust is gone did a made that song beautiful uh, and then it was his manager <laughs> that suggested and really sold us on the idea of having Scott do the entire album and make it a band. And we drew up paperwork and, and Scott signed, you know, a band agreement as a band member and it was officially a band. And, uh, then we got John Moyer from Disturbed on bass and, and, there you go, and we did the whole first album, and and that came out in 2015, and and when we announced the band, uh, you know, two years after signing uh, everything and doing everything, uh, you know, Scott publicly said that he wanted to just stick to his solo stuff and and denounced the whole thing a lot. And the album came out in June, and at that point, uh, we were just thinking, all right, do we just let it die, or do we get another singer and and try again? And two months later, we were down in Florida jamming with Scott Stapp <laughs> and, and hung out and hit it off. And a month after that, in September of 2015, uh, all five of us were in a room together for a good week and a half, just hammering out ideas just jamming jamming and jamming and jamming and recording our jams and at the end of each day we would have one or two songs structured and and just solidified and then throughout 2016 uh in between all our touring my touring scott's solo touring and disturbed touring uh we would get together and write and record and shoot videos and whatever we could do uh and then the album came out 2017 in march and it was doing well. Uh, it was it was off to a good start. 
in the first single, it almost broke top 20. And there's reasons why it didn't that I won't say, but but it climbed at least to 23, which is pretty cool. Now, now your band, you know, you always said, you know, you want to be, you wanted to be in a band, you know, there's always something that made these bands special. Now with Sons of Apollo, you're playing with basically, it's like an all-star team. And that, and you know, and it's, it's not that everyone, not everyone knows their names. Like if you're not a huge music fan, you don't know who Mike Portnoy is or Billy Sheehan, you know, or Jeff Scott Soto. But if you follow music, you know, these guys, I mean, when they it are comes, the best in their field. Yes. When it comes to the game of music. They're at a incredible level, at level as you are. How did you guys all get together? Whose idea was it to get Sons of Apollo going? And how do you sit there and, and form a supergroup? Uh, well, Mike and I have jammed a bunch of times, and we've actually been on a tour bus on the road together with Metal Allegiance, and uh, um, yeah, and I laid a guest solo on the first. Uh, Metal Allegiance album, and me, Mike, and Billy have jammed a bunch of times as well, and I had laid uh, guitar solos for uh, Madame Mayhem, an artist that Billy produced. I did, like, solos for four of the songs on her album. And Derek, uh, we all jammed uh, on the Progressive Nation at Sea Cruise a couple of years ago. And everybody is, is like, we all knew each other and have cross paths and work together in different capacities although me and and jeff never did although we have a million mutual friends that all played with each other you know like i knew uh his bass player i knew this guy that guy and i've been a huge fan of his ever since hearing him on you know rising force marching out uh huge jeff scott soto fan so Mike hit me up early this year and said, hey, you know how we've always been talking about putting a band together? It's like, yeah. He's like, well, I got this idea. It's sort of like uh, this and that, and we're looking to do this, and, and we want to jump into the studio and just in 10 days record the whole album. It's like, all right, well, I'm free those 10 days. Let's, let's do it. So uh, Derek would start sending me uh, demos, like little ideas, like a little 30-second clip of, of a piece of music he's writing, and then I would send something from the studio, uh, like, hey, check out this riff, and, and we would just give them all different names. Uh, and then when we got together, we took those as just starting points to build off of, so we just had something to start with. And that was it. We just started jamming. We would jam on one of those riffs and then get a feel for where it could go next, and just trusted each other's instincts and ideas. And and by the end of each day, we would have a song that we just played together and, and rolled tape on. And, and we did the whole album, just as much music as we could make that time would allow in, in those days. Uh, so it was me, Derek, and Mike for for the beginning of it all just writing recording together and then billy got off tour and joined us and it was the four of us and then after that uh jeff got off tour and did all his vocals and i went back to my place and banged out uh all the extra stuff you know guitar solos and any little things here and there and any backing vocals and that was it now are you excited about the upcoming tour because oh, yeah. I mean, because you guys yeah. are all, as I said, you guys are all, 
monsters at your craft. I mean, that must be great when you just sit there and you have the trust where it's it's no one person's show. It's everybody's show. That must be a great feeling. It is. It is. And that's exactly the thing that that plan I had when I was six years old, how I wanted to be in a band where when you listen, every ingredient is a strong flavor that you can pick out. And when you put them together, it makes something unique. I think Art of Anarchy had that too. And Sons of Apollo definitely has it. Uh, You can absolutely hear everybody's sound and personality and influence. Uh, It is some crazy stuff. These, I've been practicing my ass off. Um, These are some tough guitar parts. (laughs) And you don't even, you can't, just from listening, like when people see it, switching between the fretless and the fretted neck, and it is just some wacky stuff going on. Uh, I'm practicing more than I ever had to practice. Isn't that crazy? I mean, all those years and now, you know, as you said, you said every every day you take a step. And that's right. And now, though, I mean, it's sitting there and, and you want to look. I mean, and we all want to look good. But, you know, you have to look good because, you know, everyone else is going to be killing it. And they know you're going to kill it. So that's why you're doing all the practice. And it's awesome. And the thing is, a lot of the guitar parts that I would make for my albums, for anything, they're pretty spontaneous. So I bust it out. Sounds good. Cool. Um, but then to have to relearn it, that's the hard part to relearn it and to replicate it exact, which I guess I don't have to do, but I try to, I try to play exactly what I played, uh, down to, you know, which finger on which string, just by listening to the raw tracks and listening to the tone of the strings and everything. Uh, man, it is tough. Really, the hardest, I have the hardest time playing my own stuff. Sometimes I just don't know what the hell I did. (laughs) (laughs) And it's some crazy stuff. Uh, I always say I'm just going to start writing these simple three-chord strummy songs. And then Sons of Apollo comes along. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You're like, okay. But it it, it, it all worked out because, you you know, that six-year-old... Bumblefoot is sitting there going, man, now I'm playing with, you know, my equals, my peers, and, and everyone has a group thing. So it's awesome. So the tour, this tour, while well, you're doing, a, you do, I think your first gig is the Cruise to the Edge, right? That's February 3rd, yeah. right? And then So you, that's, that's going to start it off, yes. So doing that, which I'm really looking forward to. There's going to be so many great bands on there. Uh, Thank You Scientist is going to be on there. Uh, they're a band that I just toured Europe with. They were my support act, and, and their bass player and guitar player were also my bassist and guitarist in my band. They did double duty. Oh, wow. And they're just a phenomenal, phenomenal band that everyone should check out. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. This is great. And uh, as I no, said, thank you. you'll be, you'll be playing you. in Jersey. I know you'll be playing in Asbury Park, I believe. Which, what's it yes, like? House of Independence in Asbury Park. What's it like playing in, you know... Because, you know, you're, you live in Jersey. You must like playing. It must be great when you just drive not too far to a gig. That's nice, yeah. Yeah, when, yeah, because it's, it's the travel that, that kicks your ass. Um, that's what I loved about doing, uh, like, the casino residencies and things like that. 
where you just walk downstairs and the gear is all good to go from the night before <laughs> and and you could just pick up and play and you, you didn't have to hop on a plane at six in the morning or or you know i love the tour bus actually we're, we're going to be doing the tour bus on that run in february so that'll be good because i love my bunk my little little coffin that's awesome well so, yeah. so the website is bumblefoot.com you can get all the info there and now what's your twitter uh, Twitter is twitter.com slash bumblefoot. Instagram is also bumblefoot. Uh, Facebook is bumblefoot. YouTube is bumblefoot. Everything is bumblefoot. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming in. So, people, please follow him. Go go get Sons of Apollo. Go see Sons of Apollo. Go to his website. Look at his gear and everything and buy stuff and listen to uh, Bumblefoot, you know, because he's, he's an amazing musician. So follow him, everything at Bumblefoot. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. Uh, my website is CooperTalk.net. I have over 660 episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. And if you want to start a podcast, I do teach lessons. I have a few clients around the country where hit me a message at Cooper, CooperTalk.net, and I'll give you the pricing. And, you know, we, we do an introduction, and then I coach you, and it's usually a three, three, uh, three lessons. And, you know, you'll be up and running in no problem. Also, my other uh, project, remember when I had the health condition, so I wrote that cookbook, uh, 120 low-sodium recipes, Stop the Salt. Go to StopTheSalt.com. You can buy it there. You can buy it on Amazon, but if you buy it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I'll sign up for you. So people, go follow Bumblefoot. Check him out on YouTube. Check out his music. He's amazing. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>